usually people don't fall asleep till midway through my message. So anyway, glad to be here. It's always a joy to be with all of you. And I um, always count it a privilege to be able to share the word, no matter where I am in the world. And I was just last uh, in July, um, I was in Mexico uh, speaking at a missions conference, their first one that they had, and then home for, I think, a day, and then went to Cuba for uh, some conferences that we did. And I've been going there since 1991, and so it's like home to me. I've been there over 50 times and just some lovely brothers and sisters there. And then came home for six hours. I actually didn't go home. I stayed down at the airport and then went back to Mexico to teach uh, a group of about 70 people, some pastors, but mostly people within the churches and the leadership of what I'm going to be teaching here on Friday and Saturday. And then came home for a day and a half and then arrived here yesterday morning. So, praise the Lord. Uh, you know, people tell me, or they say to me a lot of times, they say, how can you travel so much? And, and it's, I'm gone about eight months a year and, uh, and have been doing what I'm doing, uh, will be doing on Friday night for over 30 years, pastoring for 37 years. And now, those are all done together. I'm not, you don't add those two together and think that I'm like 90 years old because I'm not. Even though I look like it, I'm not that old. But, um, you know, I always often tell people, 100 years ago I'd be traveling by boat and I'd be feeding the fish every day because I'd be getting sick. And So flying in the plane 300,000 miles a, a year, I'm thankful for planes, much better than boats. So, anyway, just a real quick thing about um, learning to study the Bible. And actually, I was kind of wrestling with what to share this morning. Uh, not what to share, but one of two things to share. And so, I've, I've decided on James chapter 4 is what we're going to look at this morning. But I think next week we may look at uh, one of the most prominent signs of the last days. And I'm not going to tell you what that is. Maybe you can do some reading and, and decide for yourself what it is. But uh, the reason that I have really been um, focusing on this particular sign of the last days is because it's going to come about as a result of, well, the Word of God not being taught. And so... That kind of a segue, I, I love this. I, I got this some time ago, and as you can read, most countries I go to, they have no idea what that says. I have to explain it to them. But this is like an illustration of the Bible, okay? And so if you're not, a person's not saved and they read the Bible, this is what it looks like to them. It just looks like a bunch of blank pages. But then when a person becomes a Christian and they begin to read the Bible, it takes on a different look. It starts to have some shape and form and and it starts to make sense. But it's not until you 
I was in Africa not too long ago. I did this. Ooh, ooh. They were quite shocked by that. And but but then when you study the Bible, which all of us, regardless whether you're a pastor or not, or you lead a Bible study or whatever, we're all called to be students of the Word. When you begin to study the Word, then it takes on a whole different form, and it takes on a lot more meaning. Pretty neat, huh? So that's my magic trick for the day. Um, but I think it's a good illustration. For me, maybe some of you who are much smarter than I am, uh, illustrations and, and objects and stuff, I learn much better by those instead of just hearing words and such. So I always like to use as many object lessons as possible as I teach. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. And we're going to focus, our text this morning is going to be on verses 1 through 10. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. Before we actually read that text, there's a few things I want us to come into agreement on that I think are of extreme importance. Number one is that I hope that we would all agree that God has spoken. And uh, not only has he spoken in the past, but he speaks today. And one of the main ways, actually the main way, not the only way, but the main way that he speaks is through his word. He's given us his word, the word of God, the Bible. And that is how he mainly chooses to speak. He speaks through the Holy Spirit as well, that still small voice within us, which never, never does contradict the Word of God. It speaks along with the Word of God. And so, can we agree on that? We agree that God has spoken. God still speaks, right? Okay, I hope we can agree on that. Um, another thing I want us to be able to start on the same, same level as we look at James chapter 4 is that the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of all Scripture. I know I had you turn to James, but keep your finger there and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And really, what I'm doing with by laying this foundation is not just simply for the sake of the message this morning, but rather instead to hopefully form your thinking and your and your mind to come to this conclusion whenever you open your Bible, whenever you hear Pastor Ben or somebody else teach the Word, whether it's on YouTube or the radio or a CD or live like this, like we're doing now, but that you would come to the Word in whatever form that it comes to you in, believing that God is speaking. He still speaks today. And that you would come to the word with this. Read along with me or follow along with me in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And well, what did he give it? 
if we believe that, that all Scripture is by, given by inspiration of God, he must have given it for a reason, right? Well, he tells us the reason. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is why God has given us his word. And then in giving us his word for this purpose, he has a desired end in mind for that. And thus comes verse 17. In verse 17, so that the man of God, women as well, may be what? Perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So I hope we can all agree on that, that all Scripture is inspired of God. It's God-breathed. It was breathed upon men who wrote it down faithfully. And it has a purpose. God has a purpose in that for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For what end? For that we would be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. And that brings me to the third thing I want us to all realize and agree upon. And that is, why were you saved? For those of you that are saved, those of you whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, why have you been saved? And there's a myriad of ideas that people have, many of them not biblical. Some people think I've been saved so I won't have to go to hell and I can live like hell now on earth until I go to heaven. Well, that's not why you've been saved, gang. You've been saved for a purpose. Jesus, in speaking to the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16, you can write this down and look at it later, but he said to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you should go forth and bear much fruit. That's why you've been saved. You've been saved for his glory. You've been saved to serve him. Previous, just back in verse 8 of John chapter 15, Jesus said that herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. Thus you will be my disciples. Two things there. Bearing fruit does what? It brings glory to the Father. And so not bearing fruit, for which you've been saved for in the first place, well, that doesn't bring any glory to God. In fact, it brings reproach upon his name. And the second thing that he says there in verse 8 is that that's a mark of being a disciple. A mark of a follower of Jesus Christ is that their life is fruitful. It's bearing fruit. And so if a person's life is not bearing fruit, well, there's good reason to question who they really belong to. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. You've been saved to bear fruit. One other verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I'm sure all of you know it very well. For we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But that's where most Christians stop knowing that portion of Scripture. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 is extremely important because verse 10 tells us why the grace and faith have been given to us to be saved. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. You've been saved to serve. You've been saved to bring glory to God because a person that's not saved, there's no way that a person can bring glory to God because they're 
They don't have a relationship with God because their sin stands in the way. But once we're saved, we're saved to bring glory to him. That's why I exist. That's why you exist. And many Christians today don't understand that. They think they exist so that they can be happy. They exist so that they can do whatever they want. Well, Jesus didn't suffer and die on the cross so you could live a life for yourself, so that you could be redeemed and you could live for him. And so hopefully we can all agree on that. And so the question is not, has God spoken? The question is not, does God speak? The question is, are we listening? Did we come here this morning anticipating that God is going to speak to us? I hope so. And not just this morning. I hope you have a daily time with the Lord where you open up the Word and you spend time in prayer and you spend time in the Word. And I hope every time that you do come to the Word, you come with the expectation that God is going to speak to me. You should come with that expectation because God desires to speak to you. That in itself should just blow us away. That should just cause us to be in awe that the creator of the heavens and the earth who, who flung the stars out with his fingertips, who just spoke everything into existence and holds everything in its place, wants to speak to me. That should never be a question whether God wants to speak to me. The question, dear ones, that you need to confront yourself with, am I listening? Do I want to hear what he has to say to me? Do I believe that the scripture that has been given, that is inspired of God, is for my teaching, to teach me, to correct me, to even at times reprove and rebuke me. And if we don't come with that expectation, then we come not being teachable. And that's really the question. Am I, are you, are we teachable? Do we, are we stubborn? You know, the opposite of being teachable is not being teachable, which is a cause, is caused by stubbornness hard-heartedness. And so how is it that I'm coming to the Lord this morning? Later on in the day, if you open up your Bible, or tomorrow, are you coming with a teachable heart? And so with that, let's take a look at James chapter 4. And if you would follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 10. And, you know, this is really... Um, quite an adjustment for me, I have to confess, because I rarely speak without a translator, because I, I can hardly speak English, let alone any of the other, other languages that I go to in the world. And it's really an adjustment, because usually I sp say a sentence and then wait. And it, I love speaking through a translator, because it gives me a lot of time to think in between. And so, well, here we go.
there we are. <laughs> of course, when I go back, we start our another semester of our school discipleship, and I don't have a translator then, so I guess this is a good getting back into the groove uh, for us. So, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet ye have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you that all the attempts from the very beginning in the garden to change your word, to minimize your word, to adulterize your word, they've all failed. You have kept your word true through the ages, and you always will. For you have said that though heaven and earth will pass away, your word will last forever. Not one jot, not one tittle will change. Because if it did, that means you would change. And your word tells us that you're not a man that you should change. There is no variance or shifting of shadow in you. You're constant. And it is said of Jesus that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, as we have opened up our Bibles, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that we might behold the wonderful truths of your word, that you'd open up our ears, Lord, that we would hear what your Spirit has to say to us. And, Lord, that you would open our minds, giving us understanding that is way beyond our ability. Your word is spirit. And the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. And so, God, we pray that your Spirit would give us understanding way beyond our ability. And, Father, with all of that, that you would open up our hearts. I pray for the breaking up of any fallow ground that's in our heart that would resist what you want to do in our lives today. Your desire above everything else is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ our Lord so that the world might see Jesus in our life. The world doesn't need to see us. It is in desperate need of seeing Jesus. So, Father, may you have your way. Silence all the distractions, and let us just simply sit at your feet and learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord this morning. In your name, 
Amen. <clears throat> One of the things I stress to pastors and those who I teach how to study the Bible over and over again, I stress to them the importance of context. Our text this morning is James chapter 4, 1 through 10. But really, and without understanding the context, context is the verses that surround the text. 1 through 10, chapter 4 is our text. The previous verses and the verses after is the context. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 18 before we actually get into the text. Because you see, verses 13 through 18 is the foundation upon which chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, rests. Without understanding the significance of the previous verses, we are not going to grasp the greatness and the importance of our text. And so go back with me to chapter 3, please, for just a moment. And let's look at verses 13 through 18. <clears throat> James asks a question. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or his life, how he lives, his works with meekness and wisdom. But if he have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not one against the truth. For this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now, if we had time, I would have you reread that and tell me what the subject is. But because we don't have time, I'm going to tell you. The subject of verses 13 through 18 is wisdom. And he identifies two types of wisdom. Identifies one wisdom as that of the world. And then the other wisdom of that of heaven. Godly wisdom, we would say. And the one, that heavenly wisdom, the main trait and what it creates and establishes is humility. The worldly wisdom, it incites, it encourages, and promotes pride. And both of them bear fruit. The heavenly wisdom, what fruit does it bear? Well, he describes it as being pure, peaceable, and gentle. The wisdom of the world also bears fruit. And the fruit that it bears is envy, strife, worldliness, sensualness, and devilish. And so, you see, this is the foundation of which he now presents chapter 4. And as you remember, or you look back at, even just verse 1 of chapter 4, from whence come wars and fightings among you? 
What does that tell you? There are some problems in the churches that he was writing to, right? And so knowing what you know now from the scriptures, from the context of the worldly wisdom and the heavenly wisdom, what wisdom do you think the churches that he was writing to were embracing? It wasn't a godly wisdom. It was a worldly wisdom. And because of that, there was all kinds of problems. All of us come into this world craving worldly wisdom. We're brought up in the wisdom of the world. And when we become a Christian, there is a struggle, a battle, a war that occurs of letting go of, forsaking, repenting of the wisdom of the world and embracing godly wisdom. And it's a battle that is going to be waged until you breathe your last. And fortunately, God gives us victory. He gives us victory over areas of our life as we continue to press on and press into Him. But you see, when we embrace, when we follow after the worldly wisdom, which some of the churches then were, and listen, dear ones, so much of the churches today, there's going to be nothing but trouble, nothing but problems. And so he begins with, with this, all of this in mind, he begins verse 1 by asking two questions. And I find it important. In fact, I've adopted this style of teaching for many years now of asking questions as I teach. Because what it does is it gets the people thinking. Here in his letter, he asks a question. Where are the wars that are among you coming from? And so what's that do? That causes them to think, causes them to question. And in using questions and teaching, it draws people into what is being taught. And it, it causes people to think for themselves. And I want people involved. I want people that I'm teaching. I don't want them just sitting there listening to me. You know, for years as a pastor, we would sell my cassette tapes to insomniacs for cure of insomnia. And that's what funded the missions for us, for me to travel all over. And now that I'm not teaching much, I, well, I should have saved those tracks. I could have funded more of my travels. But, I want you involved. I want you thinking. God created you a reasoning being. And unfortunately, the education system all over the world today does not encourage you to think. Because if you think, you're a threat. You cannot be controlled as well. God says, come let us reason together. God created you a reasoning being. He wants you thinking. And so here he asks this question, where are the fightings and the wars coming from? And then he asks a rhetorical question. His second question is that he says, do not they come even from your own lust that war in your members? This is where the problem's coming from. And again, the basis, the foundation is what? Well, they're, they're embracing the worldly wisdom. 
which is carnal. It, it's all about the flesh. Let's move on to verse 2. He begins now in verse 2 to expound upon the problem. You lust and have not. And by the way, just not right now, but maybe later, but compare chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 to what he's talking about here. It fits perfectly with the worldly wisdom. You lust, verse 2 of chapter 4, and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Lust after. Covet. This word covet comes from epithumeo, the Greek word, which means to set your heart upon, to long for, to desire. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, turn there real quickly, just a few books back to the left. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says this, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil consupience, and listen to this last part, and covetousness, the same word, epithumeo. And then he identifies covetousness as what? For those of you that turn back to Colossians 3, 5. Idolatry. And yet the Benny Hens, the Creflo Dollars, all the false teachers of the health, wealth, and prosperity, what is their draw? Covetousness. They're reaching into the hearts of men to that area of, of desire and lust and covetousness and taking them captive, promising them freedom while all along becoming a greater slave to that. And really becoming involved with idolatry. Instead of seeking after God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, they're seeking after the things of the world. And that's idolatry, gang. A verse you might want to write down and read later. It's in <clears throat> uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 21. Jesus gives a parable about a man who had a bumper crop. He had this exorbitant crop. And he said, what should I do? Oh, I'll build bigger barns. And then he dies. And God says, you fool, do you not know that your soul is required of you this very night? And who will have that which you have set your heart upon? And the whole reason for the, the parable is to warn his disciples against covetousness, which is idolatry. And as we look at verse 3, go back to James chapter 4 with me, looking at verse 3 now. <clears throat> he says, you ask amiss. I just want to focus on that for just a moment. You ask amiss. Well, well, how can we ask amiss? How can we ask wrong? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? What's asking wrongly? What is, what is involved with that? He says that you might spend it on yourself. It's all about you. There is such a movement in the church today to focus on yourself. What a miserable place to be. It causes such misery. My daughter, her, and I asked, say this so that you would pray for her. Her husband back in November divorced her. She has three babies, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and an eight-month-old. 
but it's all about him. But that's fruit of self. And whenever a person focuses on themselves, there is nothing but misery guaranteed. Pastor Ben and I were talking on the way from the airport to his place about suicide. Suicide in the world is at epidemic portion. People are killing themselves like there's no tomorrow. Here in Australia as well. All over the world. They've been sold and they have bought the lie that it's all about you. And when they find out that it's not all about them, they get depressed. And to get them out of that depression, they're prescribed drugs that only cause them to be even more depressed and want to kill themselves. And so, that's a whole different message. I don't want to go down that path right now. So, let's go on to verse 4. Back to James chapter 4. This is some very strong language. And I don't doubt that some of those that received this letter from James, as some of you here today, may be offended at these words. Un listen, gang, listen. This is not written to unbelievers. This is written to the church. This is written to believers like you and me. And that's why I preface the whole thing with, are you teachable this morning? As you hear these words and as God is trying to speak them right to you, are you offended? If you are, then you know what? You throw a stone into a pack of dogs and the one that yelps the loudest is the one that got hit. If you're offended by God's word, there's a reason for that. Because it's striking a chord in your heart that you don't necessarily like. But you need to hear it. Are you teachable, though? Will you listen? Will you allow God, allow God and his spirit and his word to rebuke you, to correct you, to get you off the wrong path that you're going on and get you on the right path? You should be, as, and I am, very thankful that God does that to us. He doesn't let us just continue on down the wrong path. He's very gracious to us. What a horrible thing it would be to continue down the wrong path for any length of time without God attempting to correct us. Well, verse 4. You would, and, and if you don't get anything out of this morning's message, I hope you get what we're going to look at right now. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's heavy. I don't know what term you use in, in Ausland about something that's really strong. But that is profound. Muy profundo. So he begins by asking a question. No, you not. And the implication is two things. Either they don't know, they're ignorant of it, because well, some of you, I don't, I don't know all of you, some of you may be a young Christian. 
and you're ignorant of this, of what? We'll see what he's talking about in just a moment. But you may be ignorant just be simply because you've never read it, you've never heard it, you've never, it's never been taught to you. So that, that is an excusable ignorance. But the other ignorance is not excusable. And that is that you are willfully ignorant. You willfully ignore the fact. And what is the fact? Well, that friendship of the world is enmity with God. That's heavy. And that word friendship comes from the Greek word phileia, phileo, the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. The, how P- Peter responded to Jesus when Jesus asked him, Peter, lovest thou agape me more than these? Do you love me supremely? And Peter, now that he's broken and he's going to be honest, not trying to impress anybody, he confesses, I phileo you. I'm fond of you. Whosoever seeks to be and is fond of the world, is at enmity with God. I hope, dear ones, you take this to heart. And that where it's needed, you repent. Because you have no place being friends with the world. And so let's look at this and identify. Let's make sure we understand what is he talking about when he says the world. Let me tell you, first of all, he's not talking about the same world of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That world is in reference to mankind, people, John 3.16. This world that he's talking about here in our text is not that world. Turn in your Bibles, and it's always best to let the Bible define for us what is meant. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. 1 John 5, 19. Just a few books to the right. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. That world is the world we're looking at here in James. The system, the the mindset, the thinking, the desires, all the things that that the world esteems. Go back to chapter 2 of the same book, James, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. We get an even clearer definition or understanding of what this world he's referring to. Verse 15, 1 John 2, love not what? The world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the question we should be asked, well, what world is he talking about? What is it? What does that mean? He's going to tell us in verse 16. For all that is in the world, what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but they're of, they're of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of, the fa- of God abides forever. And so here we have a clearer description now. 
what this world is that he's referring to. It's all those things that the fallen nature of man desires. What? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And what's, hap- what's going to happen to those things? We just read them. They're passing away. And I want, I want you to use your reasoning ability right now. If they're under condemnation, if they're passing away, they're not of God, they're of the world, why, dear ones, would you set your heart upon anything of the world? It makes no sense. If friendship with the world, as we read in James, puts you at enmity with God, why would you want anything to do with anything of this world? Why would you want to look like godless stars, whether they be in in the entertainment industry, in the sports world, why would you want to look like them, sound like them, dress like them, have, resemble them in any way? If this is the end of them and being friends with that mindset, that lifestyle, all of that puts you at war with God. Think, think. It doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's the deception of sin. It's totally contrary to what God has for your life and what Christ died for. He died to set you free from that. Not to revel in that, but to be totally free from that so that you can live for Jesus Christ and bear fruit for him and for his glory. One other verse, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What are we looking at in 2 Corinthians 4? Well, again, we're looking at an understanding of the world that James is referring to. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of what? This world. Who's the God of this world? It's Satan. Satan is the one that is setting the course to this world. And so we see the things of the world are not of the Father, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, pride of life, that they're under condemnation, that the God of this world, Satan, is the one that is setting the course of this world. Add that, to all of our understanding of this term world, why would you want anything to do with this world? If you're a child of God. I often encourage my students at our school of discipleship, find out the things that God hates and you start hating them too. God does not love the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He, In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon says there are seven, six things. Yes, seven things that God hates. And you know what's top of the list of, of the things, seven things that God hates? Pride. But make sure if you start to hate the things that God hates, which I encourage you strongly to do, you begin to hate them in your own life first. Because if you hate them only in the lives of others, you'll be totally unmerciful. That's what David did. 
David, when he heard that little story, he didn't know it was a parable by Nathan the prophet about two men, two neighbors, and one had great riches, the other one had only one little lamb, a ewe lamb, that ate to the table with him. It was like a child to him. And the neighbor that had so much, a friend came, and he forcibly took the neighbor's lamb and killed it and fed it to his friend. And David said, kill that man! Nathan said, you're the man. You see, when we don't see our own sin for what it is, and we hate the sin in our own life, we're not going to be merciful to the sin, our, the same sin that exists in our life and somebody else's life. So when you start hating the things that God hates, make sure you hate them in your own life. And many times, you won't be able to get beyond that. Because you're going to see your sin is ever so great. Think of this. Think of what Paul wrote at the end of his life. He said, it's a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. He had been walking and serving Christ for 30 years. And the closer he got to Christ, the more he saw himself as a wretched sinner. But you know what that did for Paul? that gave him such a great appreciation for the love of Christ. And yet he loves me. My sin is so great, and yet he did what he did for me. Oh, God, you're so good. How can I do anything but surrender my life completely to you and serve you with every breath that I have? Let's go back to James. When we seek, or let me rephrase this, when we are or we seek to be friends with the world, that puts us at enmity. That word enmity means hostility, opposition, hatred with God. Listen, dear ones, you as a believer in Jesus Christ have been espoused to Jesus. You're not to flirt with the world. You that are married, how would you, how would you feel if your spouse began to flirt with somebody? Making goo-goo eyes at somebody. Just kind of cozying up to somebody. How would that make you feel? Good? I don't think so. Because you're jealous for your spouse. You love your spouse. And your spouse has been entrusted to you and you to that, that spouse. And so all flirting, all longing after somebody else is to be severed. And yet when we seek to be friends with the world when we flirt with the world. That puts us at war with God. This is extremely serious. Nothing to be taken lightly. And some of you have been flirting with the world. You long for the things of the world. You desire the things of the world. And God is speaking to you this morning saying, you need to repent. Is not Christ enough? 
He has everything that you could ever want. He's provided everything that you ever need. He's given us, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he's given unto us everything pertaining to life and godliness, great and precious promises. In Romans chapter 8, he's given us the spirit, the fullness of the spirit by which we might mortify the deeds of the flesh. He's freed us from the penalty of sin. He frees us from the power of sin so that we can live as spouse to him and him alone. That we can live to please Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, if you understand the verses that we looked at of what the world is and what the world has to offer, if you are able to think rationally, let alone spiritually, why would you want anything to do with the world? There's a terrible, horrible deception in the church today. And that is that thinking that the world has something to offer us. Whether it's their philosophy, their way of doing things, the business world, or whatever it is. And I'm just going to cite one example. In the seeker-friendly church, the seeker-friendly movement, they encourage, ask the world what the world wants in a church. Really? Let me see. What verse is that? Can I find that back up in the, in the scriptures? Is that what Jesus did? Ask the world? Is that what Paul did? You should be asking Jesus what he wants in his church. But you see, this lie that the world has something good for you, something good for the church. And so in this seeker-friendly movement, we have the world philosophy that says the, the end justifies the means. So whatever method that will get more people in the church, go ahead and follow it. And what is terribly, terribly either not recognized or they recognize that they just don't care is that the means is what determines the ends. If you use carnal, worldly methods, the means, what do you think the end is, result is going to be? Spiritual? Not on your life. It's going to be worldly. It's going to be carnal. <sighs> My goodness. Where did the time go? Mm -hmm. I think you sped that clock, Ben. You have a little adjuster. And so he, he uses some quite strong language. Look again at verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses. Verse 5. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? This throws a lot of people for a loop, but let me just simply explain it simply this way. That place that the world once had in my heart, that I gave myself completely to it, that's the place the Spirit desires to have in my heart now. And the Spirit, God describes himself as a jealous God, right? You husbands, you wives, you're jealous for your spouse. Not in a bad way, but you, they've entrusted themselves to you and you to them. And so 
if if one wanders off to another, there's that jealousy that rises up, that that desire that they not go after that. And and so too, the spirit desires to have that place in your heart that you once gave it to the world and the lust of the flesh and everything about them. I mean, I before I knew Christ, I was just totally sold out to self and the world. I speak that and say that in shame. But now that I'm his, he should have that place. He, on, he is the only one that deserves that place. Verses 6 through 11, he gives the solution to the problem. He's identified the problem. What is the problem? They had, we were embracing the worldly wisdom, which was manifesting itself to love the world and the things of the world, and created envy and strife and problems within the fellowship. And now the solution. Verse 6 and verse 10. We're going to get 7, 8, and 9, but I just want to couple 6 and 10 together. But he gives, that's the Lord, gives more grace. Isn't that wonderful? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. God is so good. No matter how great the sin is, he gives more grace. If, what? You humble yourself. He says in verse 6, Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Anyone that comes to Christ must humble themselves. Anyone that would continue to walk with Christ must humble themselves. How does that play out right now this morning? Well, as God is speaking to your heart and he's putting his finger on something, how are you responding? You say, no, God, forgive me. Are you going to humble yourself before the Lord? Or are you going to be proud and resist what God is speaking to you today, calling you to repent from and of? Well, be absolutely certain of this, dear ones. You humble yourself, God will give you all the grace that you need. You don't humble yourself, he's going to resist you. And you don't want to be resisted by the Lord. And yet, that's what you've been experiencing because you've not been repenting. And then verse 10, along with this, what does he say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility is something that is rarely, if ever, taught on in the church today. And yet, it was one of the most phenomenal characteristics of Jesus Christ who although he existed in the form of God, counted it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took on himself the form of a man, a bondservant, and humbled himself. Jesus there at the scene of the Last Supper took off his outer garment, girded himself with a cloth, a towel-like, got a basin of water, and went and washed the feet of the disciples. The creator of the heavens and the earth, the king of kings, the lord of lords, humbled himself, made himself of no reputation. And here you and I are, and this is one of the greatest ironies in the Bible. Here you and I are, which the Bible says we're nothing but dust. And we have such a hard time humbling ourselves. Well, what does dust have to be proud of? Can you tell me that? 
And yet we find so much to be so proud, don't we? And here's the king of kings, who even the heavens cannot contain. He humbled himself. Humility begins by receiving the correction, the rebuke from the Lord and his word. The follower of Christ must be teachable. Peter was not always teachable. Jesus, on a number of occasions, told Peter, especially at the end of Jesus' ministry, said, Peter, you and the other disciples, you're all going to run away from me. No, not me. Not a teachable moment for Peter. And then he said to Peter, Peter, before the cock crows three twice, you'll deny that you even know me three times. And what did Peter say? No way, Lord, I'll even die with you. Not teachable. Peter thought he knew himself. Jesus knows Peter through and through, just like he knows you. And Jesus was trying to speak to Peter. But Peter wouldn't have anything to do with it. Don't follow that example. And so in verses 7 through 9, we read, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Understand something. Everything in the Bible has significance and everything that's in a particular order is there for a reason. You cannot resist the devil without first submitting to the Lord, without first humbling yourself. Because by not submitting, humbling to the Lord, that opens up the door to Satan. I'm not saying Satan comes in and possesses you. That's not possible if you're a child of God. But that gives the enemy a foothold in your life. You must first humble yourself. Submit yourself to the Lord. And that is where the strength comes to resist the devil. And he will flee. And it's not a one-time thing, gang. It's a daily thing. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. Many Christians think they can serve the world and they can serve Jesus. Absolutely impossible. They try to have what they think is the best of both worlds. But if you knew what this world was, you, you wouldn't see anything that's best in it. When you can have Jesus and all there is of Jesus. Finally, he says in verse 9, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. How does, when you're confronted by the Lord with of sin in your life, how do you respond? Many respond very flippantly when they sin against God. Oh, Lord, forgive me. They're not, there's not a brokenness. There should be a brokenness in our life. There should be, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, he talks about two sorrows. There's a sorrow of the world and the sorrow, a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow, he says, leads to repentance and that leads to salvation. How does the sin in your own life, how does it affect your heart? 
Oh God, forgive me. Is there a brokenness? Is there a sorrow? Is there a grieving? If not, I would encourage you to ask God to break your heart anew and afresh. And let it begin breaking your heart over your own sin. Because there's been a callousness that has formed on your heart. And callous, callousness, think of your hand, is usually formed by using your hand a lot. Well, callousness forms on the heart by sinning a lot. And not being broken and confessing and repenting. This morning, we have the privilege and the honor, really, to partake of the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of his death, of what he did for us. And one of the things we were praying this morning, for you and for us as well, is that we would have such a joy of the salvation that is ours in Christ. That there would be such a gratefulness to God for having done what he has done for such as us, such as me. That we would be astounded with God for what he's done for us. There wouldn't just be some religious practice that we do the first of every month. And, and it, it can happen. It's happened to me. Just kind of go through the motions. And that's wrong. And so as the worship team comes up to lead us in a few songs, and as we prepare to come up and um, take the bread and the cup, and go back and sit down. And please hold on to them, uh, the elements, the bread and the cup. We'll all partake of it together. But either before you come up or you, or you come up and you, you take and go back to your seat, um, ask the Lord to work upon your heart, not just in regards to what we looked at this morning, but just that, that appreciation. You've heard the term, no doubt, I can't do this very often because most countries haven't heard of sayings that we're familiar with. But familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that. And that can happen as a follower of Christ. We, we can become so familiar with God, with his word, that we lose that awe of who he is and what he's done. And so during this time before after, you get the bread and the cup. Just come before the Lord. Confess whatever sin that God has put his finger on this morning. Ask him to forgive you. Cleanse your heart. Because you don't want to partake of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Christ in an unworthy manner. He delights in forgiveness of sins. So make sure you do that. But then also, if, there's, if you recognize that there's a lack of gratitude, for what he's done and, and awe of who he is and that he has died for you. He took all your sins, not just your sins, but what is the penalty of sin? It's death. But what does that mean? Not just physical death, it's hell. 
let's just say it's just these people in this room. I don't know, there's 30, 40, maybe 50. I can't count that fast. But let's say just 50. And how long is hell? It's all eternity. So you multiply that times 50 people. 50 eternities was put on Jesus Christ. He suffered that for us. How amazing that is. So, just come up and partake, or take them back to your seat, hold on to them, we'll partake of it together.